You guys can grab a seat. I don't think we do this enough, but can you guys thank the band for all they do for us and how constantly they lead? guys are awesome. I was trying to sing like Addy, but Jace kept looking at me weird, so I just quit. But fantastic. Um, so if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 22 is where we're going to camp out. Uh, I have to be honest, I, I'm not the most emotional guy, but I was prepping for the next couple weeks of sermons and got to our last week in Luke, uh, which will happen in a couple weeks, and it just made me sad. I mean, we spent three years going through the book of Luke together um, and know that it's coming to an end to has made me a little sad. But uh, as you're flipping, just a couple real quick things. Um, if you're interested in our church plant leadership pipeline, uh, it, the time is now to apply for that. So let me give a brief little synopsis of what that means. Um, if you're interested in church planting, interested in leadership, interested in ministry, any of that, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a college student or if you're 80. It doesn't matter any spectrum in there. If you're interested in any of leadership, especially in ministry in the church, um, please come talk to me or email me. I can give you the application. Um, we have, oh gosh, nine. Raise your hand if you're in the pipeline right now. Look around. So we have nine people, I think, going through that. I might be a good Baptist in rounding up, but it's, it's nine or eight. So it's not like two. I'm not like rounding up that high. Uh, but if you're interested in that, please let me know. Our, our goal here as a church is not to grow as many as we can in this one gathering, but we want to raise up men and women and send them out to plant churches. Um, and so as you guys probably know, you might not know, at 1030, so in five minutes, our church plant in Milledgeville will start their gathering. Um, and so the, the goal is to keep sending out. As soon as we raise up teams, send them out, raise up teams, send them out. Um, if you're interested in ministry, you're like, well, I don't know if the Lord's actually called me into ministry, this is a perfect place to find out. Um, you'll get a, a peek behind the curtain, all that entails ministry and, and church stuff. So um, if you're interested in that, please like talk to me or Dylan. Uh, where's Dylan? Dylan, look at that sitting in the front row like a good preacher boy. Um, talk to him. We can give you more information about that. Um, but with that, and I'm not going to spoil it yet, but you have to be here next week. It's going to be one of the biggest Sundays of the church history. Um, so you have to be there. We're rolling out a big announcement. Um, so please make an effort to be here next week, and you can hear how God is advancing his church and the vision to plant 10 churches in the next 10 years. Um, so please be here next week. Sound good? All right, Luke 22 uh, is where we're going to pick it up. And, and I know maybe this is just me, maybe this isn't you, uh, but have you ever got yourself in a predicament where the pride got the best of you, right? Where you thought, I can handle this, I can do this all on my own, I don't need any help, I've got this, and then quickly you realize, oh, I don't have this. Is that just me? Anyone else? Okay, so as I was thinking, uh, for, for time's sake, I'm going to skip over some of my embarrassing stories, um, not for my pride, but for time's sake, uh, because I have tons and tons and tons of these stories. You don't believe me? Ask my wife. My wife and I have dated since high school, uh, and the majority of the stories that I was thinking of came out of high school. Um, so hopefully I've grown up a little bit. But, but I think we've all been in this moment where I can take care of this myself. And that's just the, the consumerism, the individualism of America, right? I mean, that's what we hear. We can, we can do this. You're man enough. You're woman enough. You can take care of yourself. But there's a huge danger, and it's a slippery slope when we take that ideology, that thinking, and apply it to the gospel. Apply it to what Scripture says, that I can do this on my own. I've got this. Give me the book. Tell me what to do, and release me. Let me go. Now, some of you, that stresses you out. You can't go potty by yourself. Girls, I'm looking at you. But for the majority of us, 
That's where we live. That's the camp that we're in is give me this book, tell me what to do, and then let me go. And I'll take care of this all by myself. And what we're going to see is that that is a slippery slope that ends in death. So Luke chapter 22, we're going to pick it up in verse 47. Luke chapter 22, 47, as we see what this looks like for us. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Verse 50. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour, the power of darkness. Let's pray. Father, as we dive into your word this morning, would, would you teach us what you would have us learn today? Father, would this be none of my words, but would this just be straight gospel out of your mouth? God, I have no idea the, the circumstances or, or the life events that are happening as we've walked into this room. And but Father, I just pray for the next 30 minutes that you would clear all the distractions from our minds, that we could focus solely on you, your truth, and your gospel. God, thank you for everyone that's here. I know that there's no one here on accident, and I'm God, I'm just excited to see what you're going to do this morning. It's your name that we pray. Amen. So as, let me just kind of catch us up a little bit to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus in the upper room. Uh, it was the last Passover, the first communion. So we, we delved deep into what that was going to look like. And at that table, he said, one of you guys is going to betray me. The one I give the bread to, right? The one I serve communion to is going to betray me. Judas was there. Judas, Judas got it. He left. Um, so after that, the, there were some miscommunication. Um, Jesus went through all these different teachings in John 15 and 16. Um, but there was some miscommunication about what he meant by the sword, right? Like, get your swords, get ready. If you don't have any cloaks, buy one. If you don't have a knapsack, get one. And they're like, oh, okay, like we're getting ready for battle. And he goes, no, I'm, I'm sending you back out into the world. Be ready, be prepared. So they leave the upper room with some frustration in Jesus' tone because they're just not getting it. Then they get up to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, which was Jesus' tradition for that whole week of Passover. They would go into the city, he would teach, and then they would go back out and they would sleep, partly because it was quiet, it was time for prayer, time for him to spend with his boys. But the other part was to avoid death that he knew that these Pharisees, these religious leaders wanted to kill him. Um, so they were going almost and hiding at night because his time had not yet come. And so when they get up there this last night, this would be Thursday night in the story when death comes on Friday. He gets up there and he leaves eight of them and says, okay, you guys stay here, pray for me. I'm gonna go a little farther. Then he takes Peter, James, and John, goes a little farther, leaves and hey, please pray for me. Uh, don't forget about me. Then he goes, the scriptures say, a stone's throw and loses it. So last week we saw the real true emotion of Jesus. I mean, he was agonizing. Scriptures say he needed an angel to hold him up. He was that stressed, he was that worried about what was coming. We said it wasn't his death, but it was the wrath that was about to be poured out on him. 
And he came back three times and his boys every single time were sleeping. They had no desire to stay up with him to pray. They had no idea what it meant to pray so that they would avoid temptation. So finally the third time he goes, okay, whatever. Goes along and prays again. If there's any way this cup could pass, but it's not my will, it's yours. So last week we looked at that the greatest event in history came from an unanswered prayer. So we've all kind of been in that moment where God has, we felt like he was picking on us or he just was absent in our lives. But we see that the greatest gift to history, to mankind came from an unanswered prayer. So don't, don't despise those moments, but know the Lord is actually doing something big. But here we are, we pick back up in the story when he comes back down, finds him sleeping, he's telling them, I told you to pray to avoid temptation, get up, it's, they're here, they're coming. And there's four major players in this story that I want us to look at this morning to try to understand uh, what's happening. And the first one we see is Judas, verse 48. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of a man, or son of man with a kiss? Oh, Judas, would you do this to me? And so we've, we've looked over the last couple of weeks about Judas. We spent a lot of time with him, but he was one of them. Scripture would say one of the 12 came. Judas was with Jesus constantly for those three years, saw the miracles take place. He helped do everything with Jesus. He went out when Jesus sent the disciples out. I mean, it's very probable he cast out demons. He might have healed someone. This was the Judas that we're talking about. But he comes, he, he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver and comes here. Now it's interesting because Matthew and Mark record the details of the kiss, but to Luke it was so awful. The events that took place were just disgusting to Luke that he didn't even record the details of the kiss. He skipped over that part. Now this is where we have to understand that the empathy that Jesus has, the reality of Jesus as fully man, because he had his boy, his friend, his bro, right? After three years, sell him out for three pieces of silver, or 30 pieces of silver. Just, just give him over. And so you can hear the emotion in Jesus' words. Judas, but you betray the Son of Man with a kiss. The Greek word kiss is the same as love. So this is a mocking horror that just took place. I mean, the reality of this kiss, that he could have chose any way. He could have shaked his hand. He could throw a stone. He could have done anything but decides to betray the Son of Man with a kiss. One commentator put it this way, it was a truly devilish act, a kiss from hell. That this kiss that took place from Judas to Jesus was a kiss from hell. But what led Judas to that point is what we're gonna to try to get to this morning. The next player that we see is Peter. Now, I love Peter. Peter's a bro. Let's read about Peter. Verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? But notice, verse 50, there was no answer. He didn't wait for an answer. And one of them, Peter, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So this is like, Peter's the ride or die kind of guy, right? Like, let's, I was reading one thing, it just cracked me up. If you've cut someone's ear off in a fight, chances are that's not the first time you've done that, right? I mean, Peter's probably like, has a collection of ears in his knapsack he's carrying around. That that's your intuition, I'm gonna cut your ear off. Chances are you've done it again. Or he was going straight for the jugular and missed. Either way, I like Peter. The audacity, just the, I'm gonna fight, I'm gonna defend here. But Peter's the guy that just doesn't listen. 
Peter's the guy that doesn't pray. Peter's the guy, uh, imagine you get into a taxi cab and go, I don't know that we have Uber, maybe that's a better way to say it. Does anyone take taxi cabs anymore? Um, Mama's taxi, doesn't that exist? Yeah, only if you're drunk. So um, imagine you get into a taxi cab and you say, get me to this address quickly. Peter's going to be the cab driver that forgets the address. All he heard was quickly, and he's going. He's pursuing as fast as he can, driving the completely wrong way, but he's literally going as fast as he can. So Peter would fight for Jesus, but he wouldn't listen to Jesus. So here's a huge distinction that we have to understand, that Peter was a fighter, but he wasn't a listener. Peter was an actor, but he wasn't a prayer. In this moment, he didn't even wait for Jesus to respond. Should we do this? Ah! Did it. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's the personality of Peter. He was ready to go. It's sidebar. I wish we could spend more time here, but, but I think the church as a whole, from a historical standpoint, can learn a lot from Peter's demeanor. That when the church is way too quick to act, to jump into things of the world, typically it ends really bad for us. I think patience is a good thing for us as a church to remember because things and culture change quickly. So Peter cuts this dude's ear off, and, and I love that the Gospel of John names this guy Malchus. Actually gives him a name because early church history would tell us that this man became a Christian after this event. So it was important for John to give this guy a name so they could follow him in the next couple years and see him come to Christ, which is a no-brainer, right? Like if I go to arrest a guy, like, and I'm, he's supposed to be the enemy and I'm the good guys and I get my ear cut off and he, I'm following that dude, I don't care what you say. Like I'm changing tide at that point. My ears are back on my head, let's go. But Peter, man, was way too quick to respond. He was, had that fight in him. He was impatient and he was ready to go. So we have Judas, the pretender. We have Peter, the fighter. And then we have the religious crowd. They're coming out. It's finally go time for them. They've been conspiring. They've been scheming. They've been pursuing to put Jesus to death for over a year now. I mean, even from the beginning, over the beginning three years ago, they've been trying to do this, but within the last year, they've really ramped it up, and it's finally go time for them. So the best number that I could find was about a thousand of them came out to arrest Jesus. A thousand people. Verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who would come out against him, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? Was I with you day after day in the temple and you did not lay hand on me? So we see that, that the Jewish priests, right, in the security for the temples could not carry swords, so they had clubs. So that means that the Jews, the priests, the elders, the scribes had went and got Roman soldiers to come with them. And Jesus is going, what the heck is going on, man? I was with you day after day after day after day. You know me. You've heard my teaching. You understand who I am. Why did you think you had to bring a thousand people out against me? But the timing was perfect. He was by himself so there could be no uprising. The timing was perfect. Judas had decided to betray him, so they, he led them out to where he was. And it was go time for the religious. They were ready to arrest. They were ready to have Jesus put behind them, or so they thought. And then the last, we have Jesus, the humble. I mean, can you just imagine for a second, all these thousands of, or thousand people come out and he welcomes them. Yeah, come on, I'm right here. 
I'm not running, I'm not going anywhere. In fact, I'm gonna take care of your boy right here who has no ear. Here's my hands, I'm, I'm, I'm yours. What do you want to do? If, if I'm in that example, if I'm giving Jesus some, some pointers here, I'm gonna go, Jesus, here's what you do. Here's what you do, you ready? You slap, you scream, you run. That's what happens. Any Office fans? That's for you, right? That's what, I, I mean, my advice would not have been just turn yourself over because Jesus has done nothing wrong here. There's nothing that he's done wrong, but Jesus in humbleness says, here we go, put all that stuff away. I'm gonna go with you. There's not gonna be no revolt from my boys. And when one of them tries, I'm gonna calm them down. I'm not running. There's gonna be no violence. Here are my hands. Take me. But remember, I'm doing this on my own accord. There's power there. There's no one that has power over Jesus Christ. But verse 53 is the most um, concise way to explain what just happened here. When Jesus says, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. This is your hour. I'm gonna give you time to do what you think you should do. This is your hour, the power of darkness. So in this moment, if we're not careful, we think, oh my gosh, they've won. I mean, just put yourself in the, in the seat of the disciples here. You see your God, your king, the ones that you're just starting to understand be led away, and you're thinking, it's over. Like, what was the last three years for? This guy that we followed, this guy that we gave everything up for is, is going away to prison. Now what do we do? It's hard when we can fast forward and we know the rest of the story, right? But, but if we can empathize, if we can put ourselves in that position as he's being led away, the earth is one. The, the, the scribes, the elders, the, the priests, they've, they've won. There's nothing else we can do. But it goes deeper than that because in that moment, hell has won. In that moment that, that we see Satan has tempted Judas, Judas fell for it. So Satan is winning. But we cannot lose the fact that it was also heaven's hour. In this moment, power was not lost. Control was not gone. God was still on his throne in control in the deepest, darkest hour. It was still in heaven's control. The demons howled, but the angels sang. Earth's hour and hell's hour are both submitting to heaven's hour. So it looks like all control is gone, but it's not. Here's how Acts 2, 22 through 23, I think it'll be on the screen. Here's how Peter puts it. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man assisted to you, attested to you, excuse me, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men that all of this was done by the foreknowledge of God. This was heaven's hour completely. There was no control loss. There was no power loss. God was sitting on the throne going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what do we do? Never saw that coming. It's impossible. That is not in God's attributes. This is all according to his good, gracious will for us. That even in the devouring darkness, Jesus was in control. Jesus was still victor. 
So then what is this text telling us? What, what are we doing with all these characters? And Luke 22, go back to verse 45 and 46. Just, we covered some of this last week, but we have to understand the transition here. Luke 22, pick it up in verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, when Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So in Jesus' last moments, I mean, these are his last words he said as a free man. Rise and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. Now, church, here's where we have to go. I think we all think that we've got temptation handled. And we start going back to the introduction. We think we're in control. I've got this. I'm under control. Tempt me not. I'm fine. We are not fine. We forget, flip with me over to 1 Peter. It'll be on the screen too, but I I need you to see this. I need you to read this. I need you to study this. I need you to memorize this. Because what we see here is a case study for three major players in this story falling for temptation. And we are naive and dare I even say fools if we don't think that we can fall into temptation just like these did. So we have to understand temptation is here for everyone. And if we think we have it mastered, that's just telling me we don't. 1 Peter 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 8. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are be experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffered a little while, the grace of uh, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But we must be sober-minded and watchful because the devil prowls around seeking someone to devour. John 10.10 would say that, that I have come to give life and life to the full, but the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So what we see here is a case study for men that have fallen into temptation in the results of their sin. But church, we have to understand that the devil is coming after all of us, and the moment we feel good about ourselves is the moment we will fail. We will fall. So what is this temptation? Is is it different for every single one of us, or or is there a root behind all of it? If we go all the way back to Genesis 3, where the first original sin with Adam and Eve, we see that temptation at its root, not necessarily fruit, but its root will be the same for every single one of us. Ladies might be tempted to look good and impress people with their looks. That ain't mine. I promise you that. Mine might be success and I want to look powerful and in control, but some of you, that terrifies you. So we can't pick, nitpick the different temptations, the fruit of it, but we can go all the way back to the root. Genesis 3, 5. This is the serpent talking to Adam and Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So the root of all temptations, what Satan is trying to trick us was the same trick all the way back in Genesis, is that we can be like 
God, that we can be in control, that we can have control, that we can have authority, that we can have power. The root of every single sin is you don't really have to bow down to anyone. You can be like God. And all of us start to believe that if we're not careful, especially in this American society that we find ourselves in. No one tells me, my truth is my truth. You can't tell me what to do. There's no absolute truth. There's no moral truth. Live and let live. Do what, you, do what makes you happy. So if we're not careful here, we're going to fall into that lie because that makes us feel like our own God. I'm in control of my life. I can take care of this. I can do this. And every temptation root is from this one sin in Genesis 3, that we can be like God. So the question then becomes, how do we know? How, how do we start to feel this before it's too late? Because if temptation starts in the mind, works its way to the heart, and then manifests itself in our hands, how can we know from the earliest on? Is there a way for us to gauge our heart, to gauge our mind, to see if we're starting to slip into temptation? I think one of the most foolish things that we can say in, in regards to sin and temptation is, oh, I'll, when it gets there, I'll take care of it. I can put it off a little bit. I mean, it's that same old thing about, oh, I'll buckle up when I get in a wreck. Really? That's smart. Tell me how that works out. I mean, it's the whole thing that, that if anything, Jesus is serious here. If anything causes you to sin, cut it off. Can I just give you a modern day example of this? This is one of the, I, I wish I had a picture, the most beautiful thing I've seen happen in probably the last year of this church. Uh, there was one of our men in here that struggled uh, with some pornography. And he sent me a picture one night of his phone that he had busted with a hammer, he had bent, he had destroyed it all and said, I'm done. Because we think that, oh, no, no, that's not going to, that's not going to, I can control this. And he's going, no, I cannot control this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I'm done. I'm tired of tempting with the tempter. It's over. But for all of us, that's not our story. We go, no, no, it's okay. I, I can get close to the line. But is there a way for us to know what's coming? Any Enneagram people in here? Okay, I'm, I'm starting, we just had a whole conversation about it before. Uh, I'm an eight, which I don't know how I'm a pastor, hand out, I'm an eight. I'm an eight wing seven. So, so here's what it looks like for me. When I'm healthy, when I'm doing well as an eight, I can be like, like, I'm not am, I'm not comparing myself to this. I can be like MLK, that I can stand up for the abused, I can stand up for the afflicted, stand up for the ones that have no voice, I can help bring change in people's life when I'm healthy. When I'm unhealthy, I'm gonna be Hitler. That I'm gonna take what I want by control, by force, by power. Both of them within themselves have the same drive, but one minute for good, one minute for evil. So taking that example, is there a way that we can read our hearts to know, man, I'm, I'm drifting towards evil. I'm falling into sin before it's too late. And I think there is. I think that's what we'll see this morning. So for us, there's going to be a quote on the screen that each of us must examine our hearts to see if we're pretending like Judas, fighting like Peter, being jealous like the religious, or yielding to God's perfect will. Will it be the kiss, the sword, the torch, or the cup? Which one is it for us? Because we're all drifting in a certain direction. Will it be the kiss, 
the sword, the torch, or the cup. So first, let's, let's cover Jesus or Judas as he's been tempting into pretending. Now, we spent a lot of time with Judas. You can go back and listen to some of the podcasts. But, but what we see, even within his kiss, right, even when he comes and finds Jesus and gives him a kiss, he is pretending, he is fake, as fake can be, and it does not bother him. So we have to go back in Judas's life to see that he's made one compromise after another, after another, after another, that he's brought himself to the point of being a pretender. All the way to the point, I mean, he had to have no soul. I mean, can you imagine going up to someone that has done nothing wrong, giving them a kiss to betray them, to turn them over, knowing that death is impending on them? How cold does your soul have to be to get there? He was pretending and he had been pretending for a long time. The temptation was you can still be your own God and be who these people want you to be. And I could camp out there the entire rest of the morning. What we see here, especially in the Bible Belt, is a bunch of good, morality, Bible-believing people that have totally missed the entire point of the gospel. It was my story. It's been a lot of your stories. Uh, Ephesians 2 puts it this way, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. But somewhere along the line, somewhere through coming through the church, and I'm not going to dog churches, but somewhere through this process, we've picked up on, yes, by grace we've been saved, but you better do what I'm asking you to do. By grace you've been saved, but you better stop cussing. By grace you've been saved, but if you don't come to church, you're going to hell. By grace you've been saved, and a lot of it comes because we have... Oh, God forgive me on this. We have this system built on just come to the front, say the simple prayer, and then you're saved and everything's going to be good. Don't even worry about it. So it's almost limited to like a seance that you would see in witchcraft. And we have this growing, spoiler if you have kids, plug your ears. We have this growing thing that the fastest in our convention, Southern Baptist Convention, the fastest growing demographic of those that are being baptized is six years old. Do you know when an average student stops believing in Santa? Eight. So can we really justify a decision that takes place by a six-year-old when they still believe in fictitious creators? I mean, we have to wrestle with this stuff because the damage that's happening to people's souls because they think, I can just pretend. I can do both. I'm going to keep walking this line for as long as I've been alive. It happened to me. It's, if you don't believe this, please just come work with me for one week. As I'm counseling people, because the root of almost every single counseling session or question people have with the Bible, the root almost every time is this. I've been living this duplicitous life and I don't know how to get out. That Jesus has become a character for me. The book, the Bible has become a novel for me. I just know how to pretend really, really well. What then do I do? The most that I do up here as a preacher is not to preach the goodness and the gospel of Jesus Christ, is to convince you that you're not actually saved because you said a prayer one time, but your life looks nothing else like Christ. That's the majority of what I have to do up here preaching in the Bible Belt. Oh, but pastor, you're doubting my salvation. Yes, because I don't know you. Is there fruit in your life? Has anyone confirmed, man, you used to be like this, but Christ has saved you and here's the fruit that I'm starting to see. 
And it's clear, Galatians is clear on this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is clear that once you accept Christ, your life will look different. If not, you're pretending. And the temptation is there, and it makes sense. I can continue to pretend I can walk down this way because I can still be my own God. You tell me what to do on Sunday, and I'll show up, and I'll look good, and I'll sing, and I might even come to an MC every now and then. And, Pastor, did you see my check that I tithe? I don't see any checks that you tithe, just so you know. No, that's pretending. And when we feel this welling up in us, we must look to the life of Judas to know it's going to end badly. This does not end well for us, that eventually we're gonna get so dead in our souls that we can worship Jesus on Sunday and do nothing with the gospel the rest of the week. Just like the hellishness, hellishness, the kiss of hell, there we go, that took place from Judas to Jesus. If we're not careful, the end result of pretending is gonna be that. That we can come here on Sundays just to appease our parents, to make ourselves feel good, and then go about the rest of the week like nothing has ever happened by us for the cross. So we have to see that a root temptation is pretending, and we see this manifest in Jesus. So as we examine our hearts this morning, do we, do we trend that way? And look, I know because I think, I think I'm really passionate about this because I was that way. And now we have kids that are starting to grow up in the gospel. I was baptized when I was nine. My daughter today turns eight. If you see her, give her a big old hug and a kiss. She loves herself and her birthday. She's been reminding us for like two months that, hey, you know what the March 31st is? And I just keep playing dumb like, no. I told her yesterday their birthday party was canceled. That's how the dad I am. So, so we're wrestling with this as parents. How, how do we know? How do we actually gauge our daughter's heart, our son's heart, our daughter's plural, our son, singular? How do we gauge their heart? How do we actually know? But what we don't want to do is foster this life of pretending that we're this way on Sundays and this way the rest of the week. That's not what we're trying to accomplish. So, so the question is, are we a pretender? Are we pretending like Judas. And if we are, let me encourage you, Judas was found out and you will be found out. This isn't a threat. This is God's good grace that he's going to pursue you and find you out so you can actually come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But the next temptation we see is, is the fight that happens in Peter. I mean, this is a visible manifesting of itself control struggle. That he asked Jesus a question and didn't even wait on the response. What does that mean? What is the imagery there? Not even the imagery. What is the reality? I don't care what you say, Jesus. I'm doing this. That we have this fight in us that we want to be in control and total power. So we fight. So we pursue. So we go after. We don't sit. We don't wait. We don't listen. Peter's reaction was natural the all-too-natural reaction of mere human nature, unprepared by prayer. So what we see here is clearly Peter was asleep, clearly he was not praying, clearly he was not listening to the voice of the Lord. He was just ready to fight. He was ready to be in control. He was ready to take power. He was ready to be his own God. He fell for the lie from Galatians 3. You can be like God, and he fell for it. 
But Peter does not realize, and if we could slow down, we could see the trajectory of his life, Peter doesn't realize the sovereignty of God. He doesn't actually trust in God. He doesn't trust in his, his word. He doesn't trust in what he said he was going to do. He trusts more in his own power. Romans 12, 19 says this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, he's quoting Deuteronomy here, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil. But some of us, we want to be in control. We want to take. So, so when temptation creeps in, that's the way Satan is going to tempt us. Is you can handle this. You can be in control of this. Just fight. Just get after it. Just work hard. Just white knuckle it. You can be in control of this. Look, church, it takes zero faith to fight. Zero. None. It takes zero faith to be in control of your own life. It takes zero faith that when these situations come up to sit back and trust the Lord, it takes 100% not to. So in that moment with Peter, it took zero faith to do what Peter did. It takes 100% of faith to sit back and say, God, what are you doing here? And I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that vengeance is yours. And now here's where this starts to limit us. Because we're so narrow-minded Vengeance is from the Lord. To zoom out three days later, what happened? Jesus defeated death. Vengeance is his. Zoom out about 34, 35 years later, what happened? Jerusalem was destroyed. Vengeance is his. But it takes faith to sit back and say, okay, I'm going to trust you because all of my temptation, my leaning is to, I can see the trajectory going to, I've got to fight, I've got to be in control, I've got to say this, if I don't, who will, I've got to go this way. But that's just tempting us to be like our own God. And then we see the crowd, we see the religious coming in. Now, I, I know this might be stretching and this is purely conjecture, which means I'm not... In, putting this on the text. This is just, when I read it, this is the thought that comes to my mind. But they come with torches. I think the imagery there runs deep because what do torches do? They shine light on themselves, whoever's holding it. So it doesn't say anywhere that Jesus or his boys had torches or lanterns or anything like that, but the crowd comes out with torches because they wanted to be in the light. They wanted to be all powerful. They wanted all the recognition, all the fame, all the glory. They were tempted to destroy Jesus because they were jealous of the attention he was getting. And if we're not careful, we can fall just like that. I mean, you look through all of the Old Testament, which we don't have time to go through all of them, uh, but the most famous one was Genesis 37, in my mind, was Joseph in the coat of many colors, right? That when his brother, when the youngest brother got all the attention, the oldest brothers couldn't handle it, they were going to kill him, and they said, wait, I bet we could sell him and make more money. And they did. So we see all through Scripture, I mean, you look at Cain and Abel, the, the stories are endless, that we want everything. We're tempted to be our own God, be in control, have all the fame, have all the glory, and we see where this ended for the religious. They never once listened. I mean, this is what blows my mind. How can you stand in the midst of what just happened when Jesus healing your servant, the guy that was with you, and still arrest him? 
I mean, how can you be so blinded to wait? I've never seen that happen before. Maybe this guy actually is God. Maybe what he's saying is true. But by the end of their temptation, it was too, it was too much that they were so jealous of what everyone else had, they were never complacent with what Jesus had given them, that they killed him, that the root, the end goal of their jealousy, of their temptation to be their own God, fell with the death of Jesus. And I see this all too often. I even joked about it earlier. I wish I could sing like Riley. I wish I could be a worship leader. I'm not content in the gifts that God has given me. Can you imagine me on stage? Like, is that Zach Brown up there? Nope, just Gabe, you're good. Calm down, right? I mean, I just, I want that ability. We're constantly looking for what other people have. We're never content with the gifts God has given us. And this jealousy, if we're not careful, is gonna lead to our own destruction and our own demise. Are we jealous of other people? because that jealousy is gonna destroy us and we see it destroy Jerusalem. We see it destroy the religious. They're no longer in power and authority because the jealousy got the best of them. But then we see the last. We see Jesus yielding everything. We see the prayer that he prayed right before this. Not my will, but yours. I'm, I'm laying everything down. There's no temptation here. Hebrews 4, 5, 15 puts it this way. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus re- put all the temptation back. He said, no, I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to fall for this. He pushed back, he rebelled against the temptation by the power of God in him. Now here's where things start to get crazy. It wasn't a temptation for Jesus, Jesus was right. It would have been good and right for him to go, I'm innocent, leave me alone, get out of here. Until you can factually prove that I've done something wrong, go. But he didn't, he did not fall into temptation. He he said, okay. My father has asked this to be done. I'm going to do it. But if Jesus' strength fell from prayer while the other ones fell asleep, how can we not make the connection that the best way to, reserve, or re, to push back temptation is prayer? I mean, we can talk prayer all day, but here's what I know about my own heart. Here's what I know about most of y'all's hearts that have opened up and talked to me. We are horrible at prayer. The prayer is something that does not naturally come to most of us. It is a discipline that we need to grow in. So if we are not praying, then we cannot for a second think we're not going to fall for temptation. If we're not renewing our minds through prayer, then we're going to be just like the crowd. We're going to be just like Judas. We're going to be just like Peter. That the way to fight back temptation and sin is through prayer. Now, as we talk about Jesus, let me kind of clarify something. I just, I just want to be real clear here. Because what I don't want you to hear me say is, Jesus resisted temptation through prayer. You can do this on your own. Just go pray. Just go white knuckle this thing. You can resist all temptations everywhere. You've got this. I believe in you. Some of you might have grown up with pastors. If you've listened to pastors, I believe in you. You can do this. You've got this. Listen, church, just look me deep in my eye sockets. I don't believe in you. You don't have this. 
The point of the story is not be like Jesus. You can, you can push back all temptation. The point of the story is Jesus is the only one that can, so run to Jesus, not your own power. And we cannot miss this. This is where we start going really crazy in our theology. That look what Jesus said, just be like, go pray, and then you can take care of all temptation on your own strength, on your own power, on your own ability. Well, whose power, strength, and ability was he coming back with? With God's. So here's where we start to get really dangerous. Flip with me over to Romans 8. This will be the last flip. Okay, Romans 8, we've got to see this. Because I would just hate for any of you to leave here this morning going, I've got this, I can control temptation, I'm in the power. No. Romans 8 puts it as clearly as possible. And it'll probably be on the screen as well. Romans 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 31. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That is written, for your sake, we were all being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But here's this next verse that I just want us to, to hone in on. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So what we want to do, the temptation for us, is know in all these things we're more than conquerors. I've got this. This temptation game is going to end today. These struggles that I've been struggling with all my life, these sins end today. I'm going to crush my phone. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take my door off my hinges. I'm going to quit my job. All these things that are tempting me to be someone that Christ hasn't made me to be. I've got this today. Thanks, Pastor. I'm in control. Stop. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him. You are not the conqueror. Christ is. You are not in control. Christ is. You cannot fix this. Christ is. If, if we start going down that, again, it's a very slippery slope. We start going into the semi-Pelagius theology where I have enough in me to do what God has required of me. That is foolish. That is heretical. That is outlandish. Stop thinking that way. Through him. That is it. That's the only way we can defeat sin. That is the only way we can defeat temptation is through him. That's why prayer is so pivotal to temptation because we're admitting through prayer, I can't do this, I can't handle this, I'm not in control. You have to be through him. So I think most of us, if we're losing the temptation game this morning, it's because we're trying to do it on our own. And we've been trying to do it on our own for a long time. Listen, church, you cannot defeat your sin in the dark. It's going to beat you. Drag it into the light. I mean, this is just a shameless plug. This is why I love DNA groups, guys with guys, girls with girls, confessing sin, holding each other accountable. 
reading scripture. What does scripture say about the sin that I'm wrestling with? Because if we try to beat temptation by ourselves in a dark room, we're never going to. We're always constantly going to fall. Christ created community for a reason. Father, Son, Spirit, that's purposeful community, even in his, his nature, his character. So what then do we do with the temptations that we're wrestling with? First, you've got to be honest. Whether it's jealousy, whether it's control and fighting, whether it's pretending or whatever it is, we have to be honest that there's temptation in us dating all the way back to Genesis 3 that we want to be our own God. We want to be in control. We've got this figured out. But gosh, please let this story be an example. You don't, and it's going to end badly. So we be honest with ourselves. But we're about to get into the time of communion and the, the most important thing for us in communion is to examine our own hearts, to think through, to marinate, to ask the spirit to reveal sin to us that maybe we become like Judas, it's so callous, it's so second nature that we don't even know that it's happening, that it's going on. So as we stop and pray here in a second, the first thing we do before we take communion is examine, God, would you reveal to me where I'm falling into temptation that's leading me to sin and death? The second thing is we pray, we, we give it over to him. Now I know that sounds like the cliche Sunday school answer, well just pray it all to Jesus. But if Jesus took time to go pray in the garden, I think we should too. That if Jesus often withdrew, I think we should too. I think we should take our cues from the one that never fell into temptation. And then as we end the service with communion on both sides, we remember that there's no way we can do this on our own while we take communion, while we break the bread which represents his body and dip it in the juice that represents his blood, is because he can say it is finished. He can say all authority is mine. If there's anything that needs to happen, I can do it. Quit trying so hard to do it on your own. As we take communion, let this be a reminder that I can't, he can. That that is the Christ that we serve. That is the Christ that loves us, that made a way for us. That he didn't create us just to leave us here to figure it out on, his, on our own. But he has saved us and he also sustains us. So I'm going to pray and we're going to examine our hearts. We're going to ask the Lord to reveal things. We're going to pray that we be protected against temptation. And we're going to celebrate that Christ is the one that defeats temptation for us, in us, and through us. But let me circle back real quick. And this is where sometimes I love preaching. Sometimes I wish that we could just be one-on-one -on -one for a second. Because I'm not a fool. As I was writing this sermon, it happened to me, and I know it's happening to you guys. God is calling you out right now in this moment. That there's temptation that you know you've been dealing with and wrestling with for a long time. And there's no one to impress here. There's no need to have any kind of swagger or look good or act pretty or there's nothing that you can say that would surprise any of the elders here, any of the leadership here, and there's definitely nothing that you would say that would surprise the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He knows. So I'm, I'm pleading with you. I mean, if there's, I know there's pastoral prayers and pastoral, here's a pastoral, please, please stop. Please stop pretending. There's no fruit, there's no joy, there's no life to be found in that. 
There's death and sin and no peace, no hope, no joy, no love. Quit playing games. And, and listen, I don't care if you're six or 60. This is for all of us. We've got to quit playing games with God. We've got to quit valuing man's opinion over God's opinion. You're, you're not fooling anyone by playing around with this temptation that you have. You're, you're not. And the ones that you are fooling, woohoo. The person that matters the most, you're deceiving and your heart is becoming so callous to the point that you could kiss Jesus on the face and then lead him to his death. That this is gonna end poorly for us. Let us zoom out to see that the life, the trajectory that we're walking in today will end badly for us. We see it all through scripture, especially in this text. So when we pray and we're asking the spirit to speak into our hearts to reveal temptations for us, please don't feel like you have to keep that hidden in. Please don't feel like, oh my gosh, I can't go anywhere with this. Turn to the person to your left or to your right. If, raise your hand if you're in a missional community, just real quick. Turn to any of these people. We are all a mess. We're all in need of grace. Please stop pretending because there's too much on the line here. So let's pray. And Father, would you forgive us for falling for the tempter? Father, would you forgive us for uh, assuming that we have it under control, for assuming that we're too strong, that we've got this, that we're in control, that we have power over Satan, that, that we can handle this on our own. Would you forgive us from all of that thinking and all that, that we're sinfully walking into? Father, would you forgive us? If we didn't need a helper, if we didn't need support, if we didn't need a savior, then why would you send Jesus to die? Wouldn't that be the most cruel thing you could have done? And by us trying to do everything on our own or keep our sin hidden or, or fight temptation in our own power, we're telling Jesus, thanks but no thanks, your death meant nothing for me. So Father, would you speak to us this morning? Would you convict our hearts? And would you give us the courage to stop pretending, to stop fighting, to stop the jealousy, to just submit to who you are, a loving Father that has made a way where there was no way. God, would you speak to our souls this morning? Would you reveal to us the sins that we've been struggling with for a long time? Would you convict us? Would you woo us back to yourselves? Father, would you forgive us for thinking we've got this under control or, or thinking that it's all up to us to fix this? God, but would we trust you in your words in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors through you? Not through ourselves, not through our own power, not through our own ability, but through you, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
So God, when you convict our hearts, when you lead us, when you speak to us this morning, would we celebrate that? When we take communion, would we remember that all that we're struggling with, all the temptations, all the doubt, all the fear, all the worry, all the control, the struggles, the power, everything died on that cross with you. And you've raised us to be new creations. That all that's in us, all the old, all the dead is gone. God, would you teach us, would you draw us into walking into our new identity, which is heirs to the kingdom, which is sons and daughters of you. So church, would we honestly pray the prayer, Jesus, speak to us in our sin. Where are we being tempted and where are we falling in temptation? Church, could we honestly say that? And could we honestly, once those sins and temptations have been revealed, pray that there's no way we can beat this except for God intervening on our behalf? And then would we get up and would we take communion remembering that that intervention has already happened? That we already are because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We are already more than conquerors through him. That we cannot defeat sin, only he can, and he has. Oh God, would we run to your cross, not from it. When temptation comes in, would we run to you like a child to his father, not run away from you thinking we can fix this on our own? And church, could we stop playing games and be honest with what's going on in us? So I'll leave us in this moment of prayer. The band's going to start to play a little bit. And and when you've asked the Spirit, once you've spent time praying for that temptation, communion is open for all the believers in the room whenever you're ready. And then we'll celebrate. We'll worship the King that has not left us here to figure this out on our own. But the one that knew we couldn't, so sent a Savior for us. So let us sit and consider and ponder where we are being tempted, where we're falling short, and leave that at the foot of the cross.